So although Jesus' inner circle is going to eventually coalesce into the 12 disciples, at the moment, he's just got a ragtag band of pupils who have begun following him around as he starts his ministry of teaching people God's good news. And these pupils are pretty clueless at this point. They just know that Jesus is something special. So in a sense, Jesus already has disciples, but up to now, he hasn't officially started calling disciples to work with him. Calling someone is sort of like hiring them in an official capacity to help with the mission. And I think that's an interesting way to look at our own callings as job offers from God. As we begin our story today, Jesus is back home in Galilee after having passed through Samaria and meeting that woman at the well. By the way, I called Samaritans heretics last week, and I want to clarify that they're not necessarily heretics in God's eyes. That's just how the Jews of this period perceived them. So I'm using the, that term in class as if I were a Jew, um, a Jewish disciple kind of walking through this story. That's how I picture us as we walk through the New Testament. So Jesus certainly did not reject the woman at the well as a heretic. Anyway, while Jesus is home, he and his family and his pupils are invited to a wedding celebration at Cana, a town just north of Nazareth. Wedding celebrations then and now often involve multiple days of events, ceremonies, and of course, partying. And Jesus is right in there amongst them at this particular wedding. The party lasts so long and there are so many people that they run out of wine. Not good. And Jesus' mother, Mary, is concerned about this. She goes to Jesus saying, they don't have any more wine. And Jesus says, what is that to you and me, woman? Now that sounds rude to our Western ears. And this is an example of needing to be careful not to read these stories from our culture. In Jesus' culture, this term certainly could be used in a rude way, but it was more often used as the English might say, my lady. Jesus says, what is that to you and me, my lady? And perhaps Jesus thinks his mother is taking on too much responsibility for this party, maybe even crossing some boundaries. And then he says something very interesting. He says, my hour has not yet come. Now, I wonder if in this wedding context, he's saying his hour as bridegroom has not yet come. We've heard John the Baptist refer to Jesus as the bridegroom of the people coming to be baptized. Also, the word Jesus uses is for time, that hour when he says my hour has not yet come that's not a general word for time it means a particular time it's like saying it's not three o'clock yet well mary isn't having any of that she knows that simply because she asked jesus will do what she has requested she knows that jesus acts out of love for both her and for their friends and perhaps the holy spirit is showing both of them that Jesus' time is indeed here. This is not the only time we will hear Jesus tell his mother or brothers that his time has not yet come 
And then he goes and does whatever it is they asked him to do anyway. I wonder if Jesus is a procrastinator in his humanity. Being a procrastinator is not a sin. Jesus can be sinless and still struggle with all our normal human shortcomings, like procrastination. I wonder if his mother knows he needs a nudge. Mary probably gives him the side eye at that point and then tells the servants to do whatever Jesus tells them to do. There are six huge stone water jars standing nearby. Now, these aren't used for drinking water. They're used for washing hands. And each of the six jars holds something like 20 to 30 gallons of water. These things are huge. And Jesus tells the servants to fill them all up with water. And then he says, draw some out and take it to the Toastmaster. And of course, what they draw out is wine. You can imagine the buzz among the servants as they hurry to take some of this wine to the Toastmaster. The Toastmaster is astonished at the quality of the wine he's just been handed. And he says to the bridegroom, everyone usually serves the best wine first and waits till everyone is drunk to serve the cheaper wine. But you have saved the best for last. And that is the end of the story. But this is Jesus' first recorded miracle, changing water into wine for a party. The English word miracles is actually the word for sign in Greek. These signs are billboards from God to his people that he is here. God has heard your cries. God is delivering you from oppression. God is more powerful than empire. And God has shown up in person. And John says that this miracle of providing wine overflowing abundantly, extravagantly for a wedding celebration is God's very first sign revealing his incredible glory in, in Jesus. And John says, Jesus' pupils see this and believe in him. So all this is taking place up in the area around Galilee. Here's a close-up of the area showing the topography. Here's Nazareth, where Jesus and his family live. And here's Cana, where the wedding is. So after the wedding, Jesus and his family go down to Capernaum. You can see from the topography that both Cana and Nazareth are up in the mountains, whereas Capernaum is down in the Jordan Valley on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. John doesn't say why Jesus' mother and brothers go with him, so maybe it's just to see Jesus' new digs. He just moved down to Capernaum, but I think they probably have family in that area. That may be why Jesus chose to move there in the first place. Maybe Jesus got to go stay with relatives in Capernaum every summer and go swimming in the Sea of Galilee. It's, it's a big freshwater lake, and Capernaum is right on the beach, so it would be a perfect place for a kid. And that might explain why we find out in a bit that Jesus has many close friends in the area. After this first sign, Jesus begins preaching and teaching in synagogues all over Galilee. The power of the Holy Spirit is in him and in his words, and he quickly becomes a sensation. One day, he goes to Nazareth, his hometown, 
And on Saturday, as usual, he goes to his hometown synagogue. Part of every service is a reading from a scroll, which contains part of what will eventually become the Hebrew Bible. At this point, the books of the Hebrew Bible all exist, and an understanding of which books will be considered canon and which will not is beginning to take shape, but it's not a definitive list yet. The Hebrew Bible is more at a consensus stage with kind of soft edges, kind of like jello when it's only been in the fridge a few minutes. One of the problems is that language in Palestine has changed over the years. The Israelites started out speaking Hebrew, and parts of their canon that they call the Law and the Prophets are written in Hebrew. Then Aramaic, which is similar to Hebrew, but not the same, uh, came to be used as the language in the area. And then when Alexander the Great conquered the world, the language changed to Greek. Koine Greek, common Greek, is the language spoken during the time of Christ. So it's natural that Jewish scholars had, as part of this linguistic transition, translated the Hebrew books into Greek. By the time Jesus is born, the Greek version of the scripture, the Septuagint, um, LXX for short, had been around about a hundred years. And we can tell from the wording that the writers of the New Testament use the words they use when they quote prophecy from the uh, Hebrew Bible, that they're actually quoting it from this Greek version of scripture that they have access to. When it when Jesus quotes scripture, it's the words of the, the Septuagint that he quotes. The Greek Septuagint is Jesus' Bible, and it is the Bible the New Testament writers use. Nevertheless, scholars disagree over whether Jesus actually spoke Greek, much less was able to read it. He certainly seems to speak Aramaic, which is the language that was used before Greek became the lingua franca. And there is question as to whether a scroll in a synagogue would be in Greek rather than Hebrew. So when Jesus goes into his hometown synagogue in Nazareth and they hand him a scroll to read, it could be a scroll written in Hebrew that he has memorized from childhood on, or it could be that he can read Hebrew, or it could be a scroll in Greek that's part of the Greek Septuagint. We really don't know. But certainly when Luke wrote the story down, he quoted the scripture from the Greek Septuagint. What we also know is that these scrolls are extremely expensive. A little synagogue in Nazareth would only have been able to afford one or two scrolls. That is perhaps why the 12-year-old Jesus was so enthralled by the teachings in the temple, where there surely were scrolls of all the books. Now, in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth, when Jesus is handed the scroll of Isaiah to teach from, it is probably a well-worn scroll he has been taught from since childhood. Jesus unrolls the scroll and finds the passage he wants to speak on. You can imagine the pressure of teaching in his hometown now that he's becoming famous. And you can imagine how packed the synagogue is to hear the hometown boy who's making it big in the world. Jesus finds one of the many messianic prophecies in Isaiah. This particular one is extremely famous. It's from the first verse 
of Isaiah 61. Jesus reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. He has sent me to preach glad tidings to the poor, to heal the broken in heart, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. So this is a great place to see the differences between the Septuagint, which is what Luke is quoting here in the mouth of Jesus, and the Hebrew Bible as we know it. The Hebrew version does not have the phrase about recovery of sight for the blind. Instead, the Hebrew version adds this beautiful phrase about the opening of the prison for those who are bound. This is an example of how we know the New Testament writers are using the Septuagint as their source for their quotes from the scripture. But what is super cool is that in this particular instance, Luke uses a mashup of the two. He leaves in the recovery of sight for the blind, and he adds that last bit about setting the oppressed free. I don't know if he's working from memory or if his version or if his version of the Septuagint is different than the one we have access to. But what Jesus does say includes all of this incredible good news directed specifically to the poor to those with broken hearts, those literally in prison or slavery, the blind, anyone who is oppressed. Jesus continues, still reading from Isaiah 61, saying, he's come to proclaim the welcome year of the Lord. Your translation may something may say something like the year of the Lord's favor. The word means acceptable, welcome, favorable. And Jesus stops in the middle of the sentence. He doesn't read the rest of the verse. But we will because we know that the Jews in that synagogue know exactly what comes next. The original prophecy in Isaiah says, This year of the Lord's favor, the welcome year of the Lord, will be a time when God sets all things right. That's usually translated as recompense or even vengeance. And the prophecy the prophecy immediately goes on to describe what that will look like. It will mean to comfort all who mourn so that those mourning in Zion will be given glory instead of ashes, the oil of joy, the garment of praise in place of depression. So they will be called oaks of righteousness planted by Yahweh for glory. And the whole rest of the of Isaiah chapter 61 is more and more blessing like this, blessing on the people, blessing after blessing. And near the end, it says, let my soul rejoice in the Lord, for he has clothed me with the robe of salvation and the garment of joy. He has dressed me as a bridegroom and adorned me as a bride. Note both the male and the female, the bridegroom and the bride here. But Jesus doesn't read all that wonderful stuff. He stops literally in mid-sentence after saying that he is here to proclaim the welcome year of the Lord. And he sits down and begins to teach. Now, he is a gifted teacher, and the folks in the crowd marvel at him and whisper, isn't this Joseph's son? Like, wow. But as Jesus teaches, What he has to say begins to rile the crowd up. He says, today, in your hearing, 
this scripture is fulfilled. I can imagine the confused looks. Like, what does he mean? The people look at each other. Did he just say this prophecy is about him? That he is the one? That word anointed is a loaded word for the Jews. In Hebrew, it it literally is the word we now transliterate as Messiah. In the Jewish culture, that word is reserved for kings and priests. And furthermore, Jesus is claiming that this is about him when he says this prophecy is being fulfilled right this very minute in that little synagogue. Jesus goes on to say, I know you are expecting me to do the things I have done in Capernaum. Clearly, he's already begun his miracles of healing. That's why he's becoming famous. Jesus says, you will say to me, physician, heal thyself. From the context, it sounds like he means that the people of Nazareth are going to expect him to perform miracles for them too. But Jesus says, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. There were lots of widows in Israel during the terrible three and a half year drought in the time of Elijah. But Elijah was only sent to give food to one of those widows, and she lived in Phoenicia, not even in Israel. And there were lots of people with leprosy during the time of the prophet Elisha. But the only leper healed was Naaman, and he wasn't from Israel either. He was the servant of the king of Syria. Oh, boy, Jesus has stirred up a hornet's nest. He's saying that he is the Messiah. He's saying he's got the power to heal the sick, give sight to the blind, deliver people from the yoke of oppression. But he's not going to do it in Nazareth because they don't believe him. And on top of that, the examples he gives from the Hebrew Bible prove that God's blessings are not just reserved for the Jews, but are for the others as well, just as they have always been. The point being that if the Jews reject Jesus, God will still heal the other nations. The Jews of Nazareth are furious. Blasphemy in the very synagogue. Heresy. Everyone is yelling. The ugliness turns to violence and the crowd becomes a mob. The mob hustles Jesus to a cliff on the edge of town to throw him to his death. But Jesus melts away through the angry crowd. He slips through their grasp and walks away. I suspect Jesus heads back to his new home in Capernaum on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And undoubtedly, his disciples catch up with him there. Just to give you a sense of scale here, the distance from Nazareth to Capernaum is only about 30 miles. And wherever Jesus walks, he gathers a crowd now. This picture is great. It shows the professional fishermen at Capernaum trying to clean their nets while people gather around, pressing in to hear Jesus. There's barely any room for Jesus to stand. And the fishermen, even though they're hard at work, are listening intently. Jesus sees that the fishermen's two boats are empty. So he climbs into the one belonging to a man named Simon, whose nickname is Peter, which means 
rock. We'd probably call him Rocky nowadays. Jesus asked Simon the Rock to push the boat a little bit away from shore. And then Jesus sits down and finishes teaching the people. Afterwards, he tells Simon and his brother Andrew to go out to the deep water and put down the fishing nets for a catch. But Simon protests, saying, Sir, we worked hard all night long and we didn't catch a thing. And it doesn't say this in the scripture, but I expect he said, and we just cleaned our nets. <laughs> I imagine Jesus just gives him the eye at this point. So Simon says, okie dokie then, because you say so, I will let down the nets. And Simon and Andrew push off and let down their nets. And they are astounded when the nets not only fill up, but are so full, they begin to break. Quickly, they signal their partners, James and John, in the other boat. And together, they pull in so many fish, the boats themselves are in danger of foundering. Simon Peter falls at Jesus' knees and says, Go away from me, for I am a sinful man. But Jesus says, Do not be afraid. Now you will catch people. The familiar translation is, you will be fishers of men. But there's a wordplay in this story that is totally getting lost in translation. Remember when Jesus tells Simon Peter to go out into the deep and let his nets down for a catch? That word is agron. It means to catch as in hunting or fishing. It's used throughout the story. But here at the end, when Jesus talks about people, he uses a different word. He uses the word zogron. This word does not mean fishing in a hunting sense. It means taking alive. If we want to be like Jesus' disciples, we will not be hunting people down, but rather our whole purpose must be for life. And so Simon Peter and his brother Andrew join Jesus. Their partners, James and John, are in the other boat with their father Zebedee. And when Jesus calls to them, you bet they hop out of that boat and follow Jesus. And that is how the disciple named John enters the story. He's the one who ultimately writes what we know as the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell this story as I've told it to you. But John tells it completely differently. And it's so different that I'm going to go back and retell this exact story as John tells it. But remember that John's gospel is more of a theological statement than a history. So we're going to listen to his version with that in mind. See if you can identify the theological threads John pretty much packs this story with. John's version of the story occurs back before John the Baptist is imprisoned. John the Baptist is standing by the side of the road talking to two of his disciples when he sees Jesus walking by. He points Jesus out to them and says, look, the Lamb of God. Now, the whole Lamb of God imagery comes into Christianity after Jesus' death as the early Christians 
including John, begin to make connections between Jesus' death and the daily sacrifice of lambs uh, at the temple, as well as the Passover lamb. So right away, we can see the theological overlay John is giving the story. His version may not be meant as a literal history, but may have been reworked as a theological statement about who Jesus is. When John the Baptist points Jesus out, his, his uh, John's two disciples immediately leave him and start following along after Jesus. Jesus turns around and says, what are you looking for? And the two men say, Rabbi, where are you staying? And Jesus says, well, come and see. And the two men go home with Jesus and stay with him all day until about four in the afternoon. One of the men, as it turns out, is Andrew, Simon's brother. He runs to tell his brother, we have found the one we've been searching for. We have found the Messiah, the Christ. And Andrew brings his brother Simon to Jesus. See how different this version of the story is? And it's fraught with all this theological imagery about sacrificial lambs and the Messiah. Well, when Jesus sees Simon, he says, ah, you are Simon, the son of John. You will be called Rock. You can see Jesus' personality shining all through this story. Someone wants to know where he lives. He invites them over and spends all day with them. He sees Simon and immediately nicknames him Rocky. Jesus is a casual, friendly guy, someone easy to be with. I wonder what it was that he sees in Simon that evokes this particular nickname. Certainly someone steadfast and solid, a true friend, perhaps. The next day, according to John's version of the story, Jesus decides to go to Galilee. Because in John's version, all this had happened way down south near where John the Baptist is ministering. So as Jesus is leaving, he sees a man named Philip, who is from Bethsaida, the same town Peter and Andrew are, are from. It's basically the next town over from Capernaum. It's way up there in the north. And Jesus commands Philip, follow me. Quickly, Philip runs to get his buddy, Nathaniel, and finds him sitting under a fig tree. And Philip says, we have found the one Moses and the prophets wrote about. He is Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, are you kidding me? Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Ouch. <laughs> Besides that, no one expects the Messiah to come from Nazareth. The prophets say he's to come from Bethlehem in Judea, right? Nevertheless, Nathaniel agrees to at least go and meet Jesus. When Jesus sees Nathaniel, he says, ah, here is an Israelite in whom there is no deceitfulness, no hidden agenda. And Nathaniel says, you don't even know me. And Jesus replies, I saw you while you were still sitting under that fig tree, even before Philip called you. Well, Nathaniel is amazed and says, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. And Jesus says, you believe that because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. But you will see much more than that. 
I say to all of you, truly for sure, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The Son of Man being what Jesus calls himself regularly in these various Gospels. So this is a weird statement, and it's actually a direct reference to an important event in the Hebrew Bible. Long, long ago, Abraham's grandson Jacob was running for his life and all seemed lost to him. But he had a dream in which he saw God standing at the top of a ladder that reached to earth. And angels were going up and down the ladder. And in that dream, God re-promised to Jacob the promises he had given to his grandfather, Abraham. God said to Jacob, whose name was actually later changed to be Israel, I will give you the land you are lying on. Your descendants will be as numerous as the dust on the earth. All families on earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. I am with you. I will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you home. I will not leave you. Wow. Jesus is saying he is that very ladder reaching from heaven to earth. God is reiterating his promise to bless all the families, all the tribes, all the nations on earth. And Jesus is the connection, the way, and the means. Jesus is how this worldwide blessing will happen. You can see how theological John's take on the story is. For John, the calling of the disciples is all tangled up in God's promises to Israel and to all the people and how Jesus is the embodiment of this. In our breakout groups today, there are several choices of discussion topics. You can choose to think more deeply about miracles as a billboard from God, or you might want to talk about catching people alive rather than hunting them down like fish with a hook in their mouth, or maybe this whole idea of Jesus as Jacob's ladder. So, you know, your groups may have all, all talked about different things. So tell me, tell me what you picked and what you talked about. We ended up getting all three of them. Oh, wow. We're that good. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> we were that or we just agreed well. <laughs> no, it was a miracle. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Sign from God. <laughs> so tell me about it. Of that clues Julie up. Oh, all right. All right. So first, first we have the first one, which is um, the billboard. All right. So Jesus is the actual billboard. He's the ultimate miracle. All the other little miracles point to him. So when you have all those fish jumping into the nets, then that is a miracle for the people, the other fishermen to recognize that Jesus is not just your ordinary speaker and healer, but he is the Messiah, which they get. I mean, that that's kind of interesting. They really, really do get that. All right. So then he tells them to be fishers of men. Um, and of course, we know that that is not hunting them down, but it's living a life that Jesus wants everyone to live so that you're attracted 
to the life. And if you're, and, and the fact that Jesus was human when he was uh, with the people and especially the disciples, he was giving concrete examples of how it is that he wanted everyone to, wants everyone to live. So the disciples go out, they, and they are to attract people to their way of living. So then they can get on the ladder of Jesus and go up to heaven. Wow. <laughs> okay. And that, notice that that ladder is two way. It's not mm-hmm. a, you go there to mm-hmm. heaven and you're staying there. It's, it's a two way thing. It's like, God is here. We're here. We're all doing the work. We're all doing it together. Jesus is, you know, it's, it's like earth has become part of the kingdom of heaven. That's a really big point with Jesus and all this imagery. Uh, Julie summarized us very well. Did we get them? Gail? No, I don't have like an answer sheet. I only (laughs) write the questions. I don't write the answers down. That's that's up to you guys. What about the other group? Did y'all talk about that at all? We focused um, most of our conversation on the second question, um, the whole idea of the difference between our understanding being fishers of men and the, the phrase, you know, you will take people alive. And, and what did that, you know, what was the differentiation there and what did that mean culturally to the fishermen? Um, and, um, and some of what Julie said was where we kind of went with it, the idea of it wasn't so much that you had to go out and, and nab people, but that you were inviting people that they, that, you know, like Jesus, oh, you, you're curious. You want to know where I live? You want to know something about me? Come, come, come find out. Um, but another idea we talked Another idea we talked about was how close it is between you will take people alive and you will make people alive. Which is pretty cool, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then we talked, we we sort of brought in the whole idea of, of, um, you know, Jesus promising an abundant life. You know, I'm I'm here to help you make you even more alive. And... Mm -hmm. um, and rather than focusing, I, I think it was Brian said, rather than focusing on, on the end of life, mm-hmm. it was really more a focus on the f- fullness of living life. Meaning, yeah. I mean, end of life, meaning like heaven, hell kind of thing, or is that what you meant? Mm-hmm. That it's more focused on life now. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and I think one of the things to be, sure about is if you are trying to emulate the traits that Jesus demonstrated it's not judgment it's not vengeance it's love acceptance kindness caring things like that that's what we want to emulate and Sometimes we do a better job of it. Sometimes we don't. We just went through an election. We see how nasty things can get. You know, we put that aside. We keep 
next day, try and do better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we talked a lot about the analogy of, of adopting children. Uh-huh. Tell me more about that. Well, that, that um, people adopt a child to try to give them a better life, to make them more alive. As an adoptive mom, a lot of people have told me, oh, you're so wonderful for taking this child out of China and, and uh, you're so you know, caring and kind and you've done such a great thing. And I always tell people, I didn't do anything for, I, my main motivation was a I wanted a child. I needed more, I needed another child. And it just happened that God took us to China. And yeah, she had a horrible life over there living in an orphanage. And yeah, but I, I didn't save, I didn't, my main motivation was not to save a child. My main motivation was that I needed a baby. So she saved you. She saved me. She saves me every single day. Yeah. But also, too, it makes me wonder, like, regardless of what the context of take is, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it starts with come with me mm -hmm. and then you will take people alive. So it's not like the, that they are going to take people alive, that they're coming alongside Jesus, who is making people alive. So I think that shifts mm -hmm. the focus on the disciples and then they're actually just in for the ride to watch and to see how Jesus does make people like well even if you just there. look at the miracle at face value still the term of making fishers of men as opposed to fishers of fish or whatever but the context still is those fish jumped into the net they weren't doing the work to get the fish they tossed the nets out and the fish said oh i'm gonna jump in this net and they and that's what happened and I think in the, the big picture of things that still sets the example for us that we're not supposed to be out there aggressively trying to track people down and, and which is what I was taught my entire life. We are to be out there in the trenches and we are to find these people and we are to save them from hell. And we are, you know, I grew up with that fire and brimstone and, you know, and now I'm looking at it and I'm like, that's not, he wants us to live our lives in such a way that we are portraying Christ to others and we are attracting them to him. That we're and bringing that good we are that our life is full of good news for them. Right? We're not, we don't have to go out there seeking them. That if we're living the kind of life we're supposed to live, they're going to find us. And, and then... And then all we have to do is just point them to where we get the love and the peace and the joy. Erica was talking about being taught that um, when you're in front of the throne um, on judgment day, that you want to be surrounded by your spiritual children and grandchildren, all these people that you have brought to Christ um, through your evangelism. And that almost like that was the goal to have as many people as possible that you could say yeah you know i saved these people you know mm. um and and the implication i took from what you said was you know it's not a competition it's 
it's you know we're 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 to welcome people to come along and learn more if they are interested and otherwise like Shirley said we're just to live our lives in such a way that people see something that makes them want to know more so often I feel like as a pastor, what I do is stand at the storehouses of heaven and just shovel blessings out as fast as I can. And, and that I think is what the point is here that I want to get to the throne of God and say, look how much I used up out of your storehouse. (laughs) Uh, That's, that's, I think what is in view here. Not that we're going to capture them and they're going to be our medals of honor or anything. Okay, so um, moving on, did anybody talk about Jay? You said one of y'all said you got to the Jacob's ladder part. Yeah, our group did. And um, it kind of, two metaphors came out of it is uh, that the ladder, you know, you, like you, somebody said, it goes both ways, but it also, it with Jesus' life, shows us how easy it is to attract people. Tell me more. Well, because Jesus, when he was doing his miracles and, and the fish and ever, all of this, it showed that, like the fish showed that he could, you know, he communicated with nature. He communicated with the fish to, Hey, get in the net. They wouldn't have done that on their own. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's the opposite what they would have naturally done. So because he showed people how to live, it makes it easier for us now, if we're doing it the right way to bring people to Jesus. <laughs> Bye, Julie. I think something that I take took out of this, and Shirley, thank you for explaining how you view the the fish jumping into the net rather than men catching, because it goes back to we all interpret the Bible and every word in it through our lens, through our experiences, and there, it isn't a right or wrong. And so I think it get it's so complicated because I see people who are literally forcing their faith like you can't have a conversation without it's gotten and it's a sermon and it's a but you gotta receive him and and I wonder if that kind of urgency in them to kind of force it on people is their interpretation of just saying I I know this truth that we're all gonna perish if you're not saved and I love you so much that I'm I'm gonna force it because I don't want you to you know like their perspective still is such black and white it's heaven or hell and if the consequence is eternal hell then of course they're gonna force it on you and I don't know I I I just guess I have a little bit more um, grace for those people that are so inclined to kind of throw it at you without ever wanting it or asking for it because they're they're kind of in survival mode of like, I'm trying to help you survive because you don't see it or you don't interpret it the way I do. So I don't know, just good for that. Yeah, I think 
Well, I have two children who have pretty much given up on me. I'm so secular. It, they, but they would like to see me be more Jesus thumping. And I think that that's an immature view. I think that that is not having an understanding of what's the message. And that's a lifelong teaching that they have. And something that they embrace because it gives them comfort. It's black and white. It's easy to make that choice. This is off limits and this is what I'm allowed to do in life. Some people need that. They just don't need to share it with me. But they need that. That's a great, that's a great insight that there are people that um, need life to be black and white. It's much easier that way. Yes. Yes. I have a son who didn't talk to me for a year because he thought I had become a heretic until he and I got a chance to sit down and he found out that I still believed all the foundation stuff that I always believed. And I was like, I wish you had come to me sooner and we could have talked because it would have saved us a whole lot of heartache in the, in the in-between, but yeah. So it's going to be interesting as we move forward to see how Jesus teaches his brand new disciples to help him with his mission. I think it, um, it, it's just very interesting that he's, Jesus is asking for help. And that at this point, these guys know nothing <laughs> about how to do this. And we're going to get to be on the inside track of, of seeing what exactly it is that Jesus thinks is important for them to know. Um, so we'll focus on that. Mm-hmm. That's interesting because people don't like to ask for help, but a good leader asks for help and delegates, you know, and that's what Jesus is doing with these disciples. Exactly. And you know what? I remember when I was in India once speaking to a group of young people, young you know, new, new to the bank people um, that were working over there. And, um, and I remember telling them that uh, not to be afraid of doing such a good job of improving things so much that their job went away, that, um, that I had made just a career (laughs) out of doing that, of, of coming in and just making things run so well that I worked myself right out of a job. Um, and, and, and I remember it being a holy moment. I mean, even my boss was in the meeting too. And afterwards he looked at me and said, wow, you know, because you could have just heard a pin drop um, in the room because it hit them in a place that that they experienced pain, you know, um, and, and I think that what Jesus is doing here is he's setting up this process to work himself out of a job. He's, he's setting this up so that he will leave. 
Well, and he knows he's not going to be here forever, I guess. I'm I'm just wondering, you know, this is this is how this is naturally what a, a lead a good leader will do. Does he know this yet? I don't know, but it makes perfect sense that Jesus would begin just knowledge sharing, you know, and teaching and like like Julia says, delegating. Yeah, it's to me, um, it would be kind of neat to have more recorded conversations that Jesus had with his disciples. You know, we've got a few examples, you know, teach us how to pray. And, you know, what about that guy over there? And, and yeah. that sort of thing. But the day-to-day conversations, because they were together all the time, they were traveling together, they were eating together, they were, you know, living together. And so you know that this was an ongoing, you know, apprenticeship, tutorial kind of situation where Jesus was modeling the teaching and the serving and the caring, but also teaching. So that when he did send them out, you know, when he started sending them off in teams of two and saying, yeah, go, you know, talk to that village over there. And if they don't receive, you know, kick the dust off your shoes and leave. But if they do receive then stay and teach by then they had the tools Mm -hmm. they had observed the master they had learned the skill set and then they went off to to practice what they'd learned kind of like going into an internship and residency after you've been trained i think it's john that says if if all the things that Jesus said and did were written down, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to hold it. He said something to that effect. Wouldn't it be fascinating, though, to have been a fly on the wall? I mean, obviously, the Gospels are just tiny snippets of, of as Marlene said, the conversations that were ongoing throughout his ministry. You know, this conversation made me ponder a question and there's probably no answer to this maybe it's just a statement but when christ was being tempted i wonder if he was shown his fate Hmm. you know because he's like you said gail he's going out and preparing now to work himself out of a job Mm -hmm. that's a really good question julia because certainly that last temptation where Satan showed him all the kingdoms and power and glory in the world, that would have been a sharp contrast to what he ended up getting, right? Yes. At least from a worldly point of view. Yes. Very It would be easier to pick that other option for me, myself. For sure. For sure. Yeah. For sure. And Jesus, I think, even when he did know, for when we know for sure he knew what was going to happen to him when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was like, God, is there any other, is there a plan B? Can, you know, can we talk about plan B? <laughs> you know? Because this is not looking good. Yeah. And even before that, he was saying, you know, this temple is going to be torn down and then mm-hmm. in three days, you know, mm-hmm. so yeah. already knew what was coming yes at some point in this he 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 comes to know we don't know exactly when we know we have stories from when he definitely knew 
and we're in these stories where we don't know if he knows yet. So it's, it's very, it's very interesting. If only well, it's different. an iPhone back then. <laughs> yeah. It's also different when you think about, okay, this is going to happen. Oh, it's happening. I mean, there's a huge difference. And so it also shows me that, you know, a lot of people, I've heard from people that, you know, once Jesus came into his own, he left his humanness behind. Well, no, he didn't, because it's still very plainly there in the garden. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. And I'm, um, and I'm trying to pull out for you, you know, how human he was. Um, It's just, he is our brother. Yeah, there's, there's real meaning. I was was thinking about what you said at the beginning of the lesson about Jesus being sort of a procrastinator. And maybe, um, who knows? (laughs) And I was wondering if it actually might have been that he didn't really truly understand or trust his calling yet, Mm. that he didn't, he wasn't sure that he was ready to do what it looked like he was being asked to do. And so he was kind of like, no, not yet, not yet, not yet. And more a matter of, insecurity at that point in his life which i don't know interesting because we we tend to think of jesus as you know just being bold and out there and all knowing but totally sure-footed all the time right maybe he was hesitating because he wasn't sure he understood the message yet or wasn't sure that this was what he was supposed to be doing. He was clearly famous, getting famous at this point, but there was clearly this yin and yang with his mom, you know, like she knew he could do it, you know, and she knew he would do it. And he's like, but my time isn't here yet. And, but clearly the, the, the impetus is upon him. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, people aren't going to take no for an answer at this point. Yeah. And maybe him saying my time isn't here yet was him more saying to his mom, I'm not ready yet. Yeah. Or could it be if Julie is saying he did get a glimpse of it, that of how his fate was, then that again goes back to show his humanness of like, I don't want this to begin yet. Because he already, if he already knew what was going to happen at that time, maybe he was trying to delay it in his humanness of like, once I start this, there's no stopping. I'm, I know my end, it's going to be the cross. And so that could be a way of us recognizing back his humanity of like, oh, can I just wait a little longer before this all starts and this train wreck begins? Yeah. <laughs> so it's interesting because we don't know, but it's definitely both both could be true Mm -hmm. yeah we don't know and we're like because we only have all these time as woody says these tiny snippets we're having to fill in the blanks and put pieces together and try to make a image of a picture it's not going to ever be perfect and we're going to always have questions and i think god must have done that on purpose so that we don't have all the answers that we can go to the source of the answers So anyway, we're done. It's time. And I will see you next week. Thank you. Bye, y'all. Bye.